Let's turn in our Bibles today to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is a song of instruction. I'm going to call this message the joy of forgiveness. I'm going to read it to you from a version you probably don't have. It's uh, pretty well taken from the Hebrew language to try to give some meaning of Hebrew words. And I'll read it to you from that version that I have. Psalm 32, verses 1 down through 11. Let's listen to it. Happy is the man whose transgressions are lifted, whose sins are covered. Happy is the one to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity, in whose breath there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wore out, for my roaring all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my tongue is turned like a summer drought. Then my sin I made known to you, my iniquity I did not cover. I said, let me confess against myself my transgression to the Lord. And you, you lifted the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, all the loving ones shall pray to you at a time of distress. For the flood of many waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. From distress you protect me. With glad cries of deliverance you surround me. I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way that you should go. I will advise with my eye upon you. Do not be like a horse or a mule without knowledge of bit and bridle, his ornament to curb not coming near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but to the one who trusts in the Lord, mercy surrounds him. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you upright of heart. Today we want to start a series on the subject of forgiveness. We will want to look at God's promise to forgive, God's forgiving nature, what is it that needs to be forgiven, what it costs God to forgive us, how people need to prepare themselves to be forgiven, how God just longs and yearns to forgive, what does forgiveness do for us, what does it mean to be free from condemnation and the shame of our past? How God empowers us to keep from future involvement with sin? What the purpose of being forgiven is and what it looks like to live as a forgiven people. I tell you, this series will make you shout. Psalm 32 ends with an exhortation to shout. It's amazing. But we're going to begin this series by using Psalm 32 to look at the joy of forgiveness. Now, David writes this psalm. David is beyond belief that he has been forgiven by God. Do you remember his adulterous sin with Bathsheba? Do you remember how King David became complacent and gave in to lust? He should have been out on the battlefield with his army, but no... He was back in the palace taking it easy. Do you remember how he had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, murdered 
on the front lines of battle. Do you remember how at first he did not repent, but he tried every which way he could think of to cover this up? Who can imagine the horrible weight and the burden of guilt in his soul? How wretched had he become in his heart? Now Psalm 32 is the fourth psalm uh, that David um, writes during this incident in his life. There are four psalms, and here they are in order. There's Psalm 6, there's Psalm 38, Psalm 51, and Psalm 32. All four of these psalms are related to this particular offense against God. Psalm 6 is the earliest one that he wrote, and if you were to read it, you would read about how he is in utter anguish while he is under conviction. You read about how he is wrestling with his own conscience. He knows that he is being chastised by God for what he has done, but he is not yielding to that chastisement. He is not brought to the point of confession yet. He is being persecuted by his enemies as part of that chastisement. If you read verse uh, Psalm 6, he is physically upset and he is physically sick. He's fearful. He's under mental duress. He has sleepless nights and he's under unrelenting inner pain in his soul. He's tired. He's without energy. He's depressed. No desire to do anything. Anguish haunts him day and night. His frame is exhausted and his spirit is consumed. What a picture of how human beings fail when they are under the burden of guilt. Time passes on and he writes Psalm 38. And in Psalm 38 he decides finally that he will need to openly confess to the Lord. His experience of guilt has proven far too much for him. In Psalm 38, he describes himself in terms of a wounded soldier. He's been hit by arrows, and he's lying on the ground, bleeding out in intense pain. His wounds are festering. He also likened himself to a drowning man, overwhelmed with almost no way to reach any more air. In Psalm 38, he is physically tormented. He's weak. He's mentally breaking apart with unfathomable sorrow that is consuming his very life. Oh, what a picture of the weight of guilt. But such is the lot of those who refuse the convicting power of God. Then Psalm 51 is his confession, his prayer to God. Finally, he confesses the truth about himself. He says it as if he was altogether born in sin. In this psalm he hides nothing from God and he has finally allowed himself to be completely broken before God. He cries out and he yearns that his spirit might be free once again. He's had it with the weight of guilt and heaviness upon his life. And then finally we get to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is a description of the unbelievable and incredible joy at the end of the process. He has prayed through. He has touched the heart of God. After he had committed such a sin, 
and he's touched the heart of God. What did he find there as he touched the heart of God? As I said, this psalm was written after he had finally made his confession to the Lord. In Psalm 32, he will reflect on what it was like to try to hide the sin, what it was to live in denial. He briefly describes the anguish and the torment he experienced mentally, emotionally, and physically. He needs to instruct others about his deliverance to warn them and give himself as an object lesson of his own life and experience. But hallelujah, after he had prayed through, he is at a loss to describe the overwhelming joy of realizing he has been forgiven. Now he knows he has been blessed. Verses 1 and 2 Old Bible says, blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. This blessing is more than happiness. It carries the meaning of something like this. Oh, the bliss. Oh, the sheer joy. Oh, the unbelievable release and the freedom. Oh, the incredible lightness of my heart and my spirit. You remember that Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount begins with several blesseds. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed, blessed, blessed. That word describes the sheer joy of experiencing the goodness of God. This word blessed, or in the translation I read to you, the word happy, it also carries a meaning that the believer is now positively moving forward in his life. He has found a certain and a confident way to walk out the rest of his life. It means the crookedness has been straightened out. It means he is now on a sure path that is actually going somewhere. Now, King David shows us how sin caused him to stray from wholeness. He had become crooked, he had become perverse. In these first two verses of Psalm 32, he uses three specific words to describe the error of his ways. He used the word transgressions. What are transgressions? Transgressions are offenses against God's laws. Now David has certainly done this. Adultery and murder. Two of the Ten Commandments. Well... He had committed more than two errors here, two transgressions. But we understand that adultery and murder were capital offenses for which there was no forgiveness. The punishment for such crimes was execution. And David was guilty on both charges. He had transgressed God's laws. He referred to the word sin. Now what is sin? Sin is simply offense against doing that which is right. It's wrongdoing. It's knowing that you're doing wrong. Sin is an offense against that which is right. And the third word that he used was the word iniquity. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Iniquity refers to the soil or the defilement that's left in the human soul. Now these three words, transgressions, sin, and iniquity, are important 
Because they each give us a shade of meaning of what sin is, what it does, and how it affects the human nature. Combined, all these words give the impression that to sin means we miss the mark. It means we overstep the mark. It means we become crooked or we become perverse. We miss the purpose of our lives. We, we shortchange ourselves from what we could be. Sin is missing the mark. But hallelujah, David discovered that God does have a remedy for it. When it comes to transgressions, the Hebrew word that's behind this word forgiven, it, is, it means they are lifted up. They are taken away. The burden is removed. Listen, the unbearable weight that crushed his very life, that put him into physical sickness, that put him into mental torment, the, the unbearable weight that crushed his very life is lifted. The guilt is lifted. The shame is lifted. Powerful word. When it comes to sins, it says that they are hidden. God conceals our sins. God puts them out of sight. It's a technical term. When you do your a bookkeeping, if you're balancing your checkbook, and if you're trying to look for that 10 cents, or that 10 pounds, or that 10 dollars, whatever currency you use, and you're trying to say, well, where is that? I, I, I can't seem to balance my book. I'm out so much. Well, when things have been done wrong, God has erased them out of the ledger of our life. They're concealed. They're put out of sight. You can search all day long through the ledger of your life and you're simply not going to find it. God has hidden, concealed, put out of sight the sins we have committed. When it says iniquity is not imputed, that means God does not recognize, He does not reckon the iniquity of our souls. These three terms, transgressions are lifted, sins are hidden, iniquity is not imputed to us. These verses speak of the total forgiveness and remission, the absolute acquittal of our sin before God. And the experience of this reality causes David to shout for unbelievable joy at God's goodness. The fact is, is that the old, wore-out scrap of humanity he had become is now teeming with abundant life. Depression has yielded to joy. Weariness has yielded to life. He has experienced the total deliverance from guilt and punishment for his transgression. Listen, the forgiveness of and the relief from his sin that he felt was as real as was the anguish the sin had inflicted in his soul. Just as he felt the pressure of his unconfessed sin, he now consciously feels the joy of it being lifted out of his life. He is blissfully aware of God's pardon and blissfully aware of God's reconciliation. He has been moved from guilt, gloom, and shame, and he now has genuine joy and happiness in his heart and his life. Wow! Now the question is, how did it happen? How did David move from one 
to the other. Well, in Psalm 32 in verses 3 to 5, David is recalling to his memory his sad experience of living a lie, of trying to hide what he had done, or his attempts to cover up, of running away instead of dealing with God. The language in verses 3 and 5 agrees so much with the language you could read in Psalm 6 and Psalm 38 that we had discussed already. Everyone in our, every one of us, and sometime in our lives, we have to stop and we have to unload our soul and our burden to the Lord. You know, we've got to learn to deal with God over whatever issue is bothering us. You know, compare the prophet Habakkuk. You know, he had questions about what he saw God doing in the world. He had questions about the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. He had questions how God could use such people to inflict his own people. You know, and he had to call it out with God. He had to just take it to God and say, God, I'm not understanding. I'm angry about this. He just learned how to deal with God. And he put his case before God. Then he stood back and he said, Now I'm going to see what the Lord has to say with me. You know what? It's okay to wrestle with God over issues in your life. Don't just let an issue carry on in your life and carry on and carry on. It's okay to wrestle with God, just like Jacob did. The fact is, we will come out of it transformed. Now, David had to wrestle with God, or God was wrestling with David over the sin that he had committed. And one of the things that David can vividly remember, even after he had been forgiven, was the torment of fighting God. Of what it was like to make excuses and being in denial of what he had really done. He really never wants to relive that experience again. He only wants it as a distant memory. In verse 3, he tells of the time when he kept silence. In other words, he wasn't going to make this confession. When he was suffering in his conscience, and he would not confess it either to God, not even to himself. Why is it that some people cannot think of themselves as being in the wrong? Why are they insensible to the reality of the situation? Why do people call sin by some other name, such as calling it a weakness or a genetic disposition? David learned that anybody, anybody can be deceived by sin, even the most powerful king. In this state, he was self-ignorant, he was numb, he was restless, he was consumed with agitation, he was heavenly burdened with guilt. He goes on in this psalm to talk about his physical and his mental pain he had brought on himself by his denial. His bones were aching, his limbs were worn out, and his heart was raging in a full-throated scream, even though he had never opened his lips in confession. Oh, what does it mean to be heavily burdened with guilt? David had discovered that though he had conquered many foreign enemies in military campaigns, he discovered an enemy he could not conquer. And that his greatest enemy was himself. Yes, we are our own worst enemy. David needed deliverance from himself. In verse 4, he talked about his conscience never being at rest, as God's hand was heavy upon him, pressuring him day and night. The secrets of his heart refused to be buried in silence or be lost in oblivion. 
His emotional and his mental burden had grown intolerable. His inner life was burnt up and he was exhausted like land that had been parched. This is what it means to be heavily burdened with guilt. But thankfully, David finally prays his way through this. In verse 5, you read about how he has made the decision to acknowledge his sin unto God. Now, my friend, that means he took ownership of his actions. And he took full responsibility. He did not try to hide his iniquity. There was no attempt to make excuses or to gloss over what he had done. He did not minimize what he had done. But he recognized the extent of his guilt and laid his soul bare before God. He pleaded for a pardon for the crimes he had committed against God and against humanity. He had come to the point of realization and made a decision to make his confession to God, even if that confession was a testimony against himself. He had to stand in the witness box and bring testimony against himself. Now this is a hard place for anybody to come to. David's case, he had shed innocent blood. A man named Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. And Uriah had much better integrity than David did. David's confession was to the very one who had made him great. To the God who had so abundantly blessed him. To God Jehovah himself. And this was the very God he had betrayed and disgraced by his actions. How could he betray God with such behavior? What was it like to confess? David can hardly believe God's response. He should have been stoned to death. He's guilty beyond all doubt. He knows it. The prophets know it. Nathan said, you are the man. And more than anything, God knows it. After David had quit his guilty silence, after he had rent off the veil of self-delusion, after he was done with falsehood before God, what did he discover? How quickly he discovered that God's nature is to forgive. Did you hear that? God's nature is to forgive. Incredible. In Psalm 32, he had given eight lines of poetry to describe his struggle, his anguish. But it only takes one short line in this psalm to describe how quickly God released him from the torture of his imprisoned conscience. God, the one and only true living God, forgave the iniquity of his sin. What kind of God is this? Who is it that we are worshiping? Well, in the light of such forgiveness and consequent joy, David must exhort others about the graciousness of God. He who has been forgiven so much has to tell others, how can we keep silent? Verse number 6 says that for this reason, 
on account of David's experience and what he has found out. He says that all who are godly, all who are faithful, those who love Him, should never be afraid to call upon the Lord. Yes, even the faithful can be overtaken with a fault as David was, but we can cry out to God and find out that He is a gracious and He is a forgiving God. Listen, God allows Himself to be found by repentant people. This should make us shout. It needs to be repeated. God allows Himself to be found by repentant people. Those who genuinely cry out to God will find that a flood of great waters will not overwhelm them. A flood of great waters will not come near them nor injure them. Such confidence we can have in such a generous God. Oh, hallelujah. This will make you shout. Instead of having to hide from God as he had been trying to do, David made a discovery in verse number 7. He showed that he learned that God had become his hiding place. He tried to hide from God. Now God is his hiding place. No harm comes to those who are hidden in God. God preserves us from trouble. He encompasses about with songs of deliverance. What can we do but us being so grateful that we sing songs of deliverance when we are delivered from such peril? Oh, hallelujah. In verse 8, David, who is the recipient of such lavish, undeserved mercy, he needs to exhort others. He's got to tell others. He wants others, even the godly, to learn from his experience. He will teach others the way that they should go. He will carefully watch over them to guide as he sees necessary. He exhorts them so powerfully in verse 9, Don't be like the horse. Don't be like the mule. These are dumb animals that have no understanding. They can be stubborn and they can be stiff-necked. Don't be like that. If somebody has an issue with God, deal with it. Don't run away. Don't run on and on with it. Maybe a dumb animal can be excused as because they have no understanding. But people who God has given the gift of reasoning to, they certainly cannot be excused. People are accountable. Horses need bits and bridles to keep them under control or else they will run rampant. What does God have to do to keep people straight? Does he have to allow them the torments of conviction as David described in these psalms? Verse 10 will state that those who persist in wickedness will have sorrows. That word sorrows is the same word that's used in the Hebrew language to describe lashes that are struck against a horse or a mule as punishment. But if we will trust in the Lord, cry out to him and be honest with him, we will find that God's mercy will encompass. Do we want to drag around our sorrows or be surrounded by mercy? As David brings this psalm to a conclusion, he puts together a three-part exhortation based upon his experience of finding incredible and unbelievable 
forgiveness in the heart of God. The first one we've stated already. He exhorts people, don't be perverse and don't be obstinate like a horse or a mule. Don't try to conceal your guilt. Don't rationalize your behavior. Take ownership of it. Don't be perverse and obstinate like the horse and the mule. The second part of his three-part exhortation is that if we resist God as he deals with our hearts, we will only surround ourselves with woes. But trust, running to God, trust, will cause us to be surrounded by mercies. Then when he gets to the third part of this exhortation, this is unrestrained joy. So much so that he's got to shout. In verse 11, he has to sing it. Let the righteous be glad and rejoice in the Lord. There is joy at the end of the story. There's relief from struggle. There's freedom from oppression in the heart. There is joy that springs up like a bubbling fountain. Sorrow and misery are exchanged for joy. So the third part of his exhortation is this. If we would by guileless repentance put away our sin, God puts it away with a pardon. <laughs> it needs to be said again, don't you think? If we would by guileless repentance put away our sin, we make this discovery that God himself puts it away with a pardon. Oh, the joy of being forgiven. Listen, we have a new song, even a song of deliverance. We have new thoughts about God. We tried to hide from Him, but now He is our hiding place. We discover that the one who convicts us is not our enemy. He's our protector and He's our friend we discover that we have a new freedom, a new citizenship, a new heirship, new prospects. Why wouldn't we shout when we have such a generous God as our God is? Listen again. Transgressions are violations against the Word of God. They're lifted. They're carried off. They're swept away. What a relief to be rid of the weight. Sins are crimes against that which is right. The choice to do the things that are wrong. They're covered. They're concealed. David discovered that he could not cover his own sins. But he discovered when he confessed them to God with contrition and brokenness that God himself covered his sins. Iniquities, that defilement of our soul is not imputed. God doesn't consider it. God judges it 
to be God. Oh, the joy of being forgiven.